Let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray for your quickening and anointing power today on your message. I pray, Lord, that you'd give me the ability to edify your people and build them up in faith and bring instruction from your word that will be helpful. We pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would be working in the hearts to apply your truth to each heart. So please do your work today, Father. Be glorified today in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take a look then at Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. This morning, I want to consider with you three areas of belief. I want to consider with you the area of belief about doctrine, the Bible and doctrine. That's number one. Number two, I want to consider with you the area of belief about the future, God's plan for the future. And number three, I want to consider with you Belief about life after death. And I don't, I mean, when you think about what people believe about those three issues, doctrine, end times, life after death, and you just pull people around the world, you're going to get all kinds of opinions. People are all over the map when you bring up those issues. And I'm not really all that concerned about what people believe. But I want to see what Jesus believed about those things from the Word today. Because Jesus, as being the Son of God, you can trust that when He believes something, it's true. So, we're going to do that today. Now, go back with me in your mind to the, the, the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, the very first Passover celebration. God gives instructions to the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 12. And he told them that they were to observe the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. But on the 10th day of the first month, four days previously, they were to select a lamb. And you think, well, why did he tell them to select a lamb four days earlier? 
Why didn't they just select the lamb on the 14th day? And the answer is because they had to examine that lamb. They had to give some time to examine it, make sure that it was flawless. It couldn't have any spot, couldn't have any blemish. It couldn't have disease or scurvy or anything like that. They had to present a flawless animal for sacrifice. Now, how does that relate to this? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Since Christ is our Passover lamb, he too must be flawless in order to be an, a sacrifice acceptable to God the Father. And four days prior to his execution, the people of Israel began to examine him to see whether he was flawless. They began to examine him. And so in Luke chapter 20, you have one after another after another of the religious leaders examining Jesus and trying to find some flaw in him. They put questions to him, trying to trap him in a statement, trying to incriminate him for some evil that they could turn him over to the authorities. See, they hated him and they wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the way. And so Luke chapter 20 is just all kinds of religious leaders coming and saying this and saying that, trying to get him to actually trap himself. The first one was a question about his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And what they meant by that is, by what authority do you cleanse the temple? You're not a priest. You're not a Sadducee. You're not a Levite. Who gave you the authority to come into our domain and kick everybody out? Well, Jesus answers them wisely. And so on they come with another question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We talked about that last week. If Jesus said, yes, it's lawful, he's going to lose all of his following because they believe that when the Messiah came, he would be anti-Rome. But here Jesus would be saying, pay your taxes to Caesar, which would be pro-Rome. And they believe that any Messiah that would arrive would deliver them from Roman oppression, not tell them to pay taxes to Roman oppression. So if he said yes, he loses. But what if he says no, you should not pay your taxes to Caesar? Then the Herodians are going to run to the Romans and tell them, this man is stirring up all the masses and committing sedition, telling them that they shouldn't pay taxes to Rome. And so he's going to lose if he says no. So they think he's got, they've got Jesus in a catch-22. But Jesus gives a superbly brilliant and wise answer, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is on that coin? Caesar's? Okay then. Well, pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But also, pay back to God what is God's, meaning yourself, your soul, because his image is written upon your own soul. And then they come with this question in Luke chapter 20. And it's a different group this time. This time it's not the Herodians, it's not the Pharisees, it's not the scribes. This time it's the Sadducees. And we need to give a little bit of background on the Sadducees so that you understand where they're coming from. The Sadducees were the wealthy, aristocratic, priestly sect within Judaism. You had the Pharisees or the biblical literalists. They accepted oral authority, the same as written authority. The Sadducees didn't do that. The Sadducees were the priestly class, and they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of Moses. Do you know what those are? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible, those five books. 
They didn't accept anything else. The prophets, Psalms, Proverbs, nothing else, just the first five books. They also did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. And because they didn't believe in life after death, they didn't believe in heaven or hell. They, Accordingly, they felt there was nothing uh, to fear because there was no hell, there was no punishment, there were no rewards after this life. So they were non-supernaturalists. They would have been the liberals of our day. The liberals who do not believe in the inspiration of Scripture, who deny the miracles of Christ, who deny His resurrection from the dead, but they still want to be religious, and they still want to have some kind of a moral, ethical, religious lifestyle. That's who the Sadducees would be today. So they come to Jesus now, and they're wanting to make Jesus look ridiculous in front of the multitudes. They want him to look stupid. <laughs> and so they hatched this far-fetched theoretical story um, about a man and a wife. The man dies, and then they quote this law from the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to look at that right now. So if you want with me, go back to Deuteronomy 25, and we'll read this, this law. Okay, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. It says there, When brothers live together, and one of them dies, and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her, and take her to himself as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. You, you get the picture of what's going on here? A man is married to a wife, and he happens to die. Well, in that case, that, that man who has died may have some brothers. It's the brother's responsibility to marry this woman. Well, why? Why would he do that? You know, we, we believe in marrying for romantic feelings today, right? Hollywood and all of that. Back in the Bible, they didn't marry for romantic feelings. They married out of principle most of the time. And here is the principle. Within Israel, it was really important for a man's name to live on and for him to be able to give his inheritance to his children and for the children to give that inheritance to their children. And so if a man died without having an heir... That was a tragedy in Israel. So in order to prevent that and to have a man's lineage carried on from one generation to another, if he died, it was his brother's responsibility to marry the wife and the firstborn son from that union would become the heir of the inheritance of the deceased father. You understand that? He would carry on the name of his father. And so the name would not be blotted out in Israel. So, there's the situation. So they come up with this, this plan. And here's the storyline. A man dies, but he's got seven brothers. And the first brother takes that woman to be his wife, but he dies before he has any sons. So the next son, or I'm sorry, the next brother takes her to be his wife. And he dies before he has a son. And all seven of them do the same thing. 
Now, if that's going on, wouldn't you start wondering whether that woman was putting something in the coffee of her husband's in the morning? <laughs> I mean, it's awfully dangerous to be married to that woman because you're going to die. I mean, after about the first three brothers dying, the fourth brother's going to, I'm not marrying her. No, no, thank you. But all seven die. And so here's their question. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? We got you, Jesus. Resurrection is silly. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. Because look, what's going to happen in this case? She can't, I mean, who, she's going to have seven husbands in, in heaven? So they thought they had Jesus by coming up with this story. Now, I'm really glad that Jesus had an opportunity to answer this question. Because by them asking them this question, it gives him an opportunity to respond with some really rich spiritual instruction about three basic areas of belief. Bible doctrine, the future of the world, and life after death. So let's look at the first one this morning, Jesus' belief about biblical doctrine. Now, we have to recognize, first of all, that this is a doctrinal dispute going on between the Sadducees and Jesus, right? The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. Jesus did. Today, we tend to view this idea of doctrine in a negative fashion. In most evangelical circles, theology and doctrine, we think, oh, man, doctrine just divides. People who are really into doctrine, they're arrogant because they think they're right and everybody else is wrong. And so we tend to want to just shy away from doctrine and we say, well, love is the important thing. The Christian life, you know, living out the Christian life, that's the important thing. We should downplay doctrine and emphasize loving each other and peace with one another. It's not really what you believe that's so important, but how you live. Jesus said you will know them by their love, not know them by their doctrine. And so this is what is common today within the Christian evangelical church. We, we want to downplay doctrine and elevate life and love and peace and unity and all of that. What did Jesus believe about Bible doctrine? Well, did Jesus say, hey brothers, we're all Jews here. You're a Sadducee. I'm not, but that doesn't really matter. What's important is that we love one another. Let's not get hung up on these petty disputes. You don't believe in the resurrection? Well, I do believe in the resurrection, but none of us can really know for sure. Let's not that, let that get between us. Let's just love one another. That's not Jesus' approach here, is it? Jesus didn't say, your idea is acceptable. My idea is acceptable. We'll all just have tolerance for each other and just believe everybody's right. No, Jesus said, there is something that is true and there's something that's false. And you Sadducees are believing a falsehood. Let me tell you what is true in this instance. Jesus refuted the Sadducees. Let me show you a, a parallel passage. It's in Matthew 22, verse 29. Now, in Matthew 22, 29, as Jesus begins to respond to these Sadducees, listen to what he says. Jesus answered and said to them, You are what? No one's there? <laughs> he says, You are mistaken. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. 
you are mistaken. Why are you mistaken? Because you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, if you were a Sadducee on that occasion, how would that have struck you? I bet you would have been offended. You say, Jesus, you're not showing very much tact right now. You're not being very diplomatic. You're telling these people publicly to their face that they don't understand the Bible? Now, these are Sadducees. They study the Bible. They know the Bible. You don't understand the Bible, and you don't understand the power of God? And Jesus says, you're wrong? You've made a mistake? <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, you know, you Sadducees, I respect your opinions, and it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's what our generation tends to say. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about what you believe. That's what's really important. See, folks, we live in an age. It's a dangerous age. And this is what our generation is saying today. Truth is relative. And tolerance is the chief virtue. Truth is relative. There's no objective truth. And the most important thing is that we all just tolerate one another and accept one another. See, the, the, the big word for that is postmodernism. We live in a postmodern age. And what that means is that we give equal validity to everybody's views. So everybody's right. Nobody's wrong. I mean, just read the newspaper, read popular magazines, go on the internet. That is the spirit of this particular age. Was Jesus a postmodernist? Jesus said, you Sadducees are wrong, and I'm right. Everyone's opinion about this is not equally valid. There is a truth, and there is an error. So we live in an age where nothing is absolutely wrong, nothing is absolutely right. That's why, within the last 15 years, we've seen a massive slide in the... Um, acceptance of homosexuality, which one once was considered by almost all Americans to be wrong. Because postmodernism has crept into this culture, and we, we feel like we cannot condemn anything anymore. We have to accept everything. Everyone's ideas and everyone's opinions are equally valid, so let's, we just have to tolerate and show tolerance to everybody. Now, you know that's the truth, right? This is the age we live in. That's why within the last 15 years, we've seen this massive slide towards accepting uh, same-sex marriage. Whereas before, it was unacceptable. Now it's acceptable because our thinking has changed where we've got to accept all opinions and all views and not condemn anything. Let me just say this. If we accept that there is a God, and this God is communicated to us in the Bible, then we have to make some judgments upon what is right and what is wrong, because the God's Word, the Bible, says what is right and what is wrong. No matter how many people say that same-sex marriage is right, you have to go to God's Word to form your own opinion of that. Not popular culture. Not what is everybody saying. Not what does the 51% of the culture say. As Christians, we are bound to go to the Word of God. What about abortion? 
Do we simply accept what culture says about that or do we go to the word of God which says that this is murder and murder is sin? What about same-sex marriage? Is that right or wrong? What does the word of God have to say about same-sex marriage? Well, the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. We have to accept the word of God rather than go down the current of popular culture. No matter how many people say that rape is okay, or murder is okay, or divorce is okay, or adultery is okay, or fornication, or embezzlement, or lying, or stealing, or cheating. These are sins defined in the Word of God, and the child of God has no other choice but to side with God and say, I cannot accept popular culture no matter what they say about these issues. Amen? Amen. We have to embrace the truth of the Word of God. Now, one postmodern author has put it this way. We live on a rock that orbits a third-class star in a universe where there is no ultimate truth. Morality is entirely socially contrived. Why can't you people just let us choose who we want to spend our lives being a partner with? Of course, he was arguing, arguing for same-sex marriage. And that's his argument. We live on a third-class star on a rock orbiting a third-class star in a universe where there's no ultimate truth and morality is entirely socially contrived. In other words, we, we, we base our morality on society and how it affects society around us. Now, if this man's premises are true, then his argument is irrefutable. Yeah, why shouldn't we allow anybody to do whatever they want and make up their own rules as they go? If there is no God... If we live on a universe where there's no ultimate truth, where all truth is relative, and there's nothing that we can say this is always wrong and this is always right. But the problem is his premises were not true. There is a God. This God has spoken. This God has given us objective truth. Not relative truth, objective truth. We don't live on a rock orbiting a third-class star where there's no ultimate truth and where morality is entirely socially contrived. That is not true. We live in a world that is created by God, and this God has something to say to the people, the creatures that He has made. And we don't have the freedom to choose whatever path we want to walk. We walk according to the path our Creator has made for us. And so what that means is that Truth matters. Truth matters. It matters whether you believe in a resurrection or not. It's important. What that means is that some views that people tell you are wrong and some are right. Boy, I'm, I'm going against my culture even saying that, but that, that is the truth, my friends. Not everything is true out there. And you have to have a Bible filter on your mind when you take in all of this information that we get daily from the media and from internet and from YouTube and all over the place. you got to put a Bible filter over your mind so that you can discern what is error and what is truth. Jesus and the Sadducees were not both right. Jesus was right and the Sadducees were we're wrong. It's not true that homosexuality, rape, abortion, murder are right. They are wrong. They are sin, which must be repented of and avoided. Now, 
when I say this, I feel like a dinosaur. <laughs> I feel like a relic from the past. And I'm only 56 years old. I'm not 92 or something. But that's the way I feel because I am out of step with my culture. But our whole generation is out of step with God. And that's why we don't believe in absolute truth anymore. Ah, oh, Folks, we need to show ourselves approved that we might present ourselves pleasing to God. What that means is that each one of you, believer, Christian, you need to know your Bible. You can't depend upon just coming to church once a week and, you know, kind of depending on what Pastor Brian or Pastor Jerome have to say to you. You need to know the Bible for yourself. You need to study the Bible for yourself. You need to read it and meditate on it and memorize it and let it get into your mind and learn to be discerning between the views that are coming at you constantly over TV and movies and what God has to say. Because this is what import is important right here. It is not important what the media tells you. The media is going to give you 50% falsehood. <laughs> so you, maybe more, yeah, maybe more than that, maybe, maybe 80%, I don't know. So, are you willing to be out of step with your generation and your culture? I mean, we have to dare to be different. Christians walk out of step with the rest of the world. We, we are not like the rest of the world. We walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing I see about Jesus Christ. To him, doctrine was important. And there were certain doctrines that were true, certain doctrines that were false. And it was important for his people to discern the difference between lies and truth. It's important for us today to study the Word of God so that we know what is true and what is not true. So, let's never take the position to downplay doctrine for the sake of unity. Yeah, unity is important. And we need to know which doctrines are important enough for us to, to divide over. There are some. There are some doctrines that are extremely important. I'll just give you a, a number. The deity of Jesus Christ, meaning His divinity, that He is God and man and the same person. The Trinity, one God manifest in three persons. The virgin birth of Christ, his sinless life, his death, substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his second coming, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Those are essential Christian doctrines that we do not just, you know, play willy-nilly with. Those are doctrines that we need to die for because they're that important. Now, there are secondary issues that are important as well, but they're not as important because they're not salvation issues. So, there we have Jesus' view on Bible doctrine. Let's look secondly at Jesus' belief about the future. And when I mean, when, when I say the future, um, I'm talking about what theologians call eschatology. Have you ever heard that word before? It's a Greek word. Eschatos means last things. Logos means word or the study of. So eschatology is the study of last things. Some people call this Bible prophecy. Some people call it the end times. Um, I'll just call it the future. And I, I usually do not talk about this very much in my, my sermons because there are several different views within Orthodox Christianity. There are four major millennial views, um, and these are all held by people who are Orthodox Christians, who are going to heaven, who have been saved by grace. But I am going to talk about it a little bit this morning, 
Okay, so I, I hope this is instructive and I hope that it's helpful. It might be challenging if you've hold, held a particular view about the end times, but I just ask for you to think about it and consider what I have to share with you this morning. I'm taking it from verses 34 to 36. Let's look at that together. The sons of this age, that's important. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Jesus says there are two ages. This age and the age to come. You see that in verse 34 and 35? There are two ages. Now, I'm not only basing this on this one passage. If you go back in Luke to chapter 18, where Jesus has just confronted the uh, rich young ruler, he says in verse 30, well, I'll start in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So again, you have this time and the age to come. Not only that, but if we were to go over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, when the religious leaders are talking to Jesus and claiming that he is doing his miraculous works by the power of Satan. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 32, Matthew 12. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. You start to see a pattern here? There are two ages, this age and the age to come. Over in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul picks up this same theme. And he's talking about the resurrected, exalted Christ. Let me read to you Ephesians 1, verse 21. God has exalted Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So I hope it's becoming clear that there are two ages right? We're in the first one, this age, but there's coming another age, the age to come. And those two ages exhaust all time. There isn't anything outside of this age or the age to come. Now, what divides those two ages? What's, what's the event that causes this age to come to an end and the age to come to to begin. Well, let's look back at Luke chapter 20 and read it very carefully. Verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. Do you see how Jesus identifies that age with the resurrection from the dead? They're parallel ideas. That age is synonymous with the age when people are raised from the dead. Okay, are we all together so far? So the resurrection from the dead is what splits these two ages. When, when 
Christ raises the dead, the first age is done away with, and this, the last age, the age to come, begins. Well, when are people raised from the dead? That's our next question. When does that happen? Well, we're told over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when that happens. Let's read this together. 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's start in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice that last phrase. The dead in Christ will rise. What's that talking about? Resurrection. Resurrection. When does the resurrection happen according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 16? What does it say in the text? Do you see it in your Bible? It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven and then the dead in Christ will rise. Am I not am I making that up or is that what the Bible says? Okay. So Christ returns and the dead in Christ rise. Correct? Now, when does Christ descend from heaven? Verse 15 tells us it talks there about the coming of the Lord. Christ comes back, the dead in Christ rise. That splits the age that we're in now from the age to come. Okay. I hope we're together on up until this point. Matthew 25, verse 31 is a very important, I think is a key passage when it comes to understanding the future because Jesus puts it so clearly and says it so straightforwardly. You know, you can spend years and years and years trying to understand Daniel and Revelation and come up with all different views and be all confused. <laughs> that, that's, that's a those are complicated passages. They're more obscure passages. This is what I would say to you. If you want to understand the future, go to the passages that are straightforward and clear. And base your eschatology on them, not on the passages that are so difficult to follow. So, Matthew 25 is straightforward. When the Son of Man, no, when the King comes in His glory, what's that talking about? What about Christ? When the King comes in His glory, what's happening? His second coming. We're talking here about the second coming, Matthew 25, 31. And all the angels with him, then he's going to sit on his glorious throne. What's happening there? Judgment. And all the nations will be gathered before him. How many will be there? All the nations. It's important. I mean, some of you have never delved into eschatology, but there are all different views out there. Some people think that when Jesus comes back, it's just going to be a certain portion of humanity. I think he's clear. All the nations are gathered before him. What does he do? He separates them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He puts the sheep on his right. He puts the goats on his left. Now, what does he say to the sheep? Verse 34. Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? 
because the Spirit of God was manifest in their life by serving the homeless and the poor and the sick and reaching out to people. But come into the eternal kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what happens at that particular time when Jesus sits as judge upon his throne. What about to the goats, those on his left? Instead of saying, come, what does he say to them? Depart. Instead of being blessed, what does he say to them? Cursed. Depart from me, you cursed ones. Depart from me into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So let's put this all together. Jesus Christ comes back and he judges all men. What has to happen before Jesus can judge a person? Do you know what, you know what that is? He's got to resurrect them first so that they can stand before him to be judged. He returns, just like it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he raises them from the dead. All the nations stand before him. He sifts and divides them all into two groups, the saved and the lost. He casts the lost into eternal fire. He brings the saved into his eternal kingdom. Does that, does that seem clear from this passage to you? Okay. If that's what happens when Jesus comes back, there's a major problem with certain views of the end times that people are teaching. <laughs> Let me just give you a little bit of history. I was saved in 1979, and I was taught a particular view of Bible prophecy, and you probably were too, because it's the pr predominant view today. Theologians call it dispensational premillennialism. If it, that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry about it. That's just the title that we give to it. Okay, this is the scheme that they, they taught me, and that you've probably heard it too. There's going to be a secret rapture, meaning that Jesus is going to catch away his people secretly, invisibly, and you probably saw the movies where people are flying airplanes and they disappear and the plane crashes and Christians are riding buses and they all crash and <laughs> or a girl's holding, taking butter to her neighbor and she disappears and the butter's melting on the sidewalk when she's gone. And I, We watched all these movies, Left Behind series. Have you all read the Left Behind series? This is the view that's popular today. There's a secret rapture, and then after that rapture, there's seven years of great tribulation on the earth where an antichrist is revealed and he shows himself to be God in the temple and then after seven years Jesus comes back and he establishes an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years have you you guys all heard this before does that sound familiar to you it's probably because that's all we've ever heard I, I thought that was the only view of Bible prophecy out there I didn't know that there were three other major views that the church has historically held and that I had only been exposed to one. But anyway, so they say, secret rapture, seven years of tribulation, Christ comes back, then there's seven, 1,000 years of Jesus' kingdom on the earth, and then after that, there's a final judgment, and then Jesus casts all the lost into hell, and then heaven begins eternally. Okay. So that's what I had explained to me in 1979, and I never questioned it until 1992. In 1992, I began to do a fresh study of the Bible to, to decide I would start. I was starting to be exposed to the idea that there are other views that people held, and I thought, really? I wonder why. I wonder why people don't believe the view that I was always taught. So I I did a fresh study of the Bible, and I didn't base my findings on the more complicated and obscure texts. 
I tried to base it on ones that were very simple and straightforward, like Matthew 25, Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. I could, I could point you to probably a dozen very, very clear passages. And what I came away with is this. Instead of having a really complicated view, and I have to admit to you that the view I was taught was a very complicated view where we had charts upon charts upon charts. You had seven uh, seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and you had all these things. You know, people were trying to figure out what all these things in the book of Revelation meant. You had a seeker rapture. You had seven years. You had an earthly millennium. The view I came away with was much different and it radicalized the way I looked at the future. And this is it. Jesus is coming back. When he comes back, he's going to raise everybody from the dead. After he raises them all from the dead, he's going to judge them all. Once he judges them, he's going to cast some into hell, and he's going to take some to heaven, and then eternity begins. Pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> the dividing line between this age and the age to come is the second coming of Jesus Christ, and there are only two ages. Okay, now if that's true, what do I do with this earthly millennium that I told was coming after Jesus returned? What do I do with that? Well, it's got to either fit in this age or in the age to come, right? Because there aren't any more ages. Can it fit in this age? Well, they tell me it happens after Christ returns. So if Jesus comes back, this age is over. So it can't be in this age because he comes back at the end of this age and starts the new age. So we can't put the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ in this age. Well, what about in the age to come? Should we push the millennium into the age to come? The problem with that is that premillennialists, I know I'm opening a can of worms because you might not understand that term. And I will happily explain all the time you want later, but I don't have time in this message to unfold all of that. Anyway, people who believe in an earthly thousand-year reign of Christ after he returns, they believe that when Christ returns, there are going to be people in resurrected bodies that he's bringing from heaven. Jesus will have a resurrected body, and the people he brings from heaven will be raised, and they'll have a resurrected body. But there'll be other people on the earth that will be born with regular bodies mortal bodies. People will die, people will be born during that time. And at the end of the thousand years, they say, the unsaved, the ungodly, will rebel against Christ's rule, and they will attack Him and His people in Jerusalem. And it, from Matthew, Revelation 20, it sounds like they almost win until a uh, fire from heaven comes and destroys them. Now, let me ask you something. If when Jesus comes back, according to the Bible... He judges all men and casts some into hell and takes some to heaven. Are there going to be any unsaved people left around to revolt against him? Are there any, are there any available? Do you, do you have anybody that can do that? They're all in hell. If Matthew 25, I, I hope you guys are following this. <laughs> if Matthew 25, 31 is correct, there's nobody left around to rebel against Christ. They're all in hell. All the ones that are sinful, that are that died, lost, they're in hell. Only those who are saved, the sheep, are carried into the eternal kingdom. So there can be no thousand-year reign where you've got a revolt against Jesus after he returns either. The thousand-year reign can't be in this age, and it can't exist in the age to come. So where is it? Okay, my opinion is that it doesn't exist. It's not going to happen. 
I changed my mind about this. I was taught that there was this thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth after he comes back until I started to look at some plain, obvious, straightforward passages of scripture and I could not harmonize that idea any longer. So I'll, I'll give you the names of the four major views. You have got historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Most people today are dispensational premillennialists, meaning they believe in a secret rapture, seven years, Christ comes back, thousand years on the earth, final judgment, and the eternal state. And I'm not going to go into the, the differences between those two types of premillennialism. There are two other views, and I just call these non-premillennial views. Some people call themselves post-millennialists. Some people call themselves ah-millennialists. Post-millennialists believe that basically the world we will be converted and then Jesus will return. That sounds too optimistic for me. Because <laughs> Jesus said, the way is narrow that leads to life and few find it. So I can't find in my Bible this idea that the whole world's going to get converted. Although it would be nice, wouldn't it? I'd like to be a post-millennialist if I could find it in the Bible. Because it just sounds pretty, pretty exciting. So I find myself in this other category. I'm an amillennialist. And that means I see the reign of Jesus, not an earthly one after he comes back, but a heavenly reign from heaven right now during the age of the church. And I, I know I've kind of opened a can of worms by doing that because I don't have the time to really take you as far as I need to, but I would be happy uh, maybe during our Q&A time or, or over lunch, we can discuss this more and I'll explain further uh, what I mean by that. Anyways... The long and the short of it is this. I might be wrong because good people believe differently than I do. But I think that Jesus believed that there were only two ages and he believed that he was going to come back, raise all men, judge all men, and then heaven and hell begin. There is no earthly millennium after he returns. So I'll just throw that out there for you to consider. If this is the first time you've ever heard that idea, just think about it. Study your Bible. See if you come to that conclusion. And if you don't, that's fine too. This isn't one of those deal breakers where we have to agree on this. This isn't the core of the gospel. This is one of those secondary issues we talked about. Okay? Number three. Jesus' belief about life after death. And this is really the crux of Luke chapter 20 when the Pharisees came to him. First of all, Life after death, Jesus says, is going to be different from life right now. Look at verse, verse 34. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, how will life after death be different from life in this age? Basically, two ways. First way is there will not be marriage in heaven, according to Jesus. We will not be marrying or be given in marriage, but he says we'll be like the angels. See, the angels don't marry each other. In fact, isn't this interesting? I see statues and pictures of angels all the time, and most of them are female. You never find a female angel in all of the Bible. 
They're all men. They're all he's. You don't find a she angel anywhere. <laughs> Just interesting. Um, but angels don't marry each other. And angels don't procreate. And angels don't give birth. How come? Because God created all of them all at once. All at one time, he created all the angels. They, the, the number of the angels wasn't added to over time like the human race was. We procreate, angels don't. He says in heaven, we're going to be like the angels. We're not going to be married. We're not going to be having sexual relationships with each other. And we're not going to be produce, producing children in heaven, contrary to what the Mormons believe. Mormons believe that if you're a good Mormon, you will be a god over a planet, and you will have celestial, perpetual sex in heaven, bringing forth spirit children forever. But the Bible does not teach that. It says that we will not be married or given in marriage in heaven. That's not the only difference. Jesus says we won't die anymore. Did you see that? This is a, a great phrase here. Verse 36. For they cannot even die anymore. Now, you know, we, we read that, and I confess, I'm, it's confusing. It's not confusing that I don't understand it. It's confusing that I cannot relate to it. A world where it's impossible to die. Because all we've ever known is a world where everybody dies, right? But in the age to come, nobody ever dies. You can't die. You're like an angel. Angels can't die. Now, the angels that are cast into hell wish they could die, but they can't. It's impossible. They're immortal beings. And none of us in that age to come are able to die. It's impossible. So in heaven, after Christ returns, the number of the people in heaven will never be increased, but they will never be decreased. Because people don't die, you don't need to procreate to produce more and more people because people never die there. They're always the same number are always there forever. You see that? Okay. So that's how it's different. Secondly, life and life after death is going to be certain. That's Jesus' point in verse 37. He says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. He says, I know you guys don't believe in the resurrection, but let me straighten you out. That the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Now remember, what, what books of the Bible did these Sadducees believe in? The first five. That's why they refer to Deuteronomy when they want to try to, you know, trap Jesus. Because they believe Deuteronomy was inspired. Now, Jesus could have answered them about the resurrection from other places in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 26, like Job chapter 19, which speak of a resurrection. But he knows they don't accept those books as inspired. So where does Jesus go? He goes back to Exodus, because that was one of the five books of Moses. And he quotes Exodus 3, verse 6. So let's go back in our Bibles and look at that verse. Here's God speaking, Jehovah God in Exodus 3, 6. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at his God. So Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus says here, 
But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of, right now, Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Do you see how Jesus is making his argument? If God had said to Moses, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was their God. Okay, then Moses could have said, well, those guys are dead and gone, and they're history. They don't exist anymore. But God didn't say that. He said, I am presently. Now, they had been dead for a long time. Years and years and years, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead, but God says, I am right now their God. And what that means is God is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of those who have ceased to exist. He's God of those who are living. Because all live to Him. So what's Jesus saying? Life after death is certain. There are certain things Jesus was dogmatic about. This is one of them. Death does not cause an individual to cease to exist. Now, I used to believe that. I remember as a, a teenager, I just thought when I died, I went into the grave, that was the end of the story. And I kind of liked that idea. You know, you're just done. But I was wrong. And I think a lot of people, atheists, many agnostics, believe the same thing. But it's not true. Nobody is going to cease to exist. Everybody is going to live after this death. Some in hell, some in heaven. But nobody just ceases to exist. So Jesus is being very, very dogmatic, very certain about the idea of life going on after death. And, and you know, people around the world, I'm not sure how this happens, but they seem to intuitively know that they're going to survive their body's death. For example, in ancient Greek religion, they would bury a corpse with a silver coin in its mouth. So, because they believe that this coin, they could pay their fare over the river of death to get into the life of the resurrection. But they needed the silver coin, so they would bury it with a coin. Uh, the American Indians were often buried with their bow and their arrows, and sometimes a dead pony, so that they could have them for the happy hunting grounds in the sky after they passed over. The Vikings were often buried with a dead horse and armor, so that they could use that in their fights in the life to come. The uh, children in Greenland who died young were often died with a, a dog so that that dog could guide them through the coast, the cold wastelands in the life to come. So all of these different cultures around the world seem to have this idea, we live after we die. I don't know where they got that idea. Maybe God has put it in the heart of every person. You know, maybe, so I, I'm not sure, but it's just an intuitive thing that it is part of most of the human race. And it's true. This intuition is right. We are going to live after we die. Now let's draw this down to a conclusion. Everybody's going to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. What will make the difference? Look back at verse 35. With a phrase that I haven't commented on yet. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. There we have our phrase. What makes the difference? You have to be considered worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
Now you say, Brian, that's who's worthy? Who's worthy of heaven? Didn't Jesus say back in Luke 17, verse 10, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves? We've only done that which is commanded of us? So Jesus taught that what we ought to all be saying is that we are unworthy slaves. So who could possibly be worthy of the resurrection of the dead? Doesn't the Bible say there is none righteous, no, not one? Doesn't it say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Then who can possibly, among the sons of Adam, be worthy of heaven? Who? Only Jesus Christ is worthy. But here's the beautiful thing. If you're attached and united to Jesus Christ, His righteousness now, His righteousness covers and clothes you. So His righteousness becomes yours and now you are considered worthy. Notice Jesus didn't say, but, but those who are worthy, to attain to that age. He says, but those who are considered worthy. God considers those who have faith in Christ worthy. He counts the righteousness of Christ theirs. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin in our behalf that we might become, what? The righteousness of God in him. The moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God considered you righteous. For Christ's sake. Not because you are righteous. <laughs> it's because you are united to Christ through faith. And His righteousness now becomes your righteousness. There's a great exchange. He takes your sin. He gives you His righteousness. There, there's this, this exchange happening. So, what makes the difference between those who go to hell and those who go to heaven? It's a person's faith, his attachment, his union to Christ. And folks, if all you've got is religion, you're going to hell. You need more than religion. You need more than morality. You need more than church attendance. You need more than just showing up here once a week. You need a living, vital relationship with the Savior. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. You need to be counted worthy by union to Christ a living relationship with the living Son of God, and when that happens, God counts you worthy of the resurrection of the dead. Not that you personally are worthy, but He is. And you're, you're joined to Him. You're married to Him. So wherever He goes, you go. It's like when you get married. I didn't have much when I got married, but I did have a motorcycle, and I had some clothes, and I had a guitar, and I had a banjo, and guess what? Debbie was co-owner in everything that I had. She had a brand new car, and I got to be co-owner in that. But that's how marriage works, doesn't it? You co-own everything together. When you married Christ, when you became a Christian, you now are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, so that if He is going to be favored by God, if He's going to heaven forever, so are you, <laughs> simply by the fact that you're married to Him. Okay. So let me just ask you this. Do you have the same beliefs as Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Bible doctrine is important? He did. Do you believe in objective truth? He did. Do you believe that some views are right and others are wrong? Jesus did. Secondly, do you believe in God's plan for the future? And I know this is a little bit less objective because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stand up here and say that I, I have the final answer on this. But I think... 
Let me put it that way. I think after long years of study that Jesus believed that when he came back, there is going to be the resurrection and judgment of all men and heaven and hell begin. And do you agree with Jesus about the afterlife? Do you believe that your soul will survive your body? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Do you believe that nobody is going to cease to exist or be annihilated, but that all will live someplace? That's what Jesus believed. So, since he believed that, and because he is the divine son of God, he's right. And if you believe anything else, you're wrong. <laughs> That's just the way we got to let the cookie crumble, because there's no other way. So I would encourage you to align your belief system with that of Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, I pray that you would seal whatever I have shared that is true this morning, and according to your word, seal that to the hearts of your people, Conform us to the belief system and truth system that Jesus believed and taught and help us to veer away from the influences of this age where they steer us wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.